we are all different. Um, yes, there's probably things that annoy the hell out of people that I do, but I hope I bring quite a lot of positive stuff. And I think that's the point. You know, we've we do all have a place in the world. We do all fit into that big jigsaw of life. And you know, just because you're different, you'll thrive. Hello, and welcome to For the Record, a new podcast series from RCVS Knowledge. For the Record will feature conversations between current and former members of the veterinary professions, highlighting voices and experiences historically underrepresented in our official archive. In this episode, we hear a discussion between four neurodivergent veterinary professionals, including facilitator Lacey Pitcher RVN. Together, they discuss what neurodiversity means, the similarities and differences in their experiences of veterinary education and practice, and how they would like to see understanding and awareness of neurodiversity to change in the future. So my name is Lacey. I am an RVN and I enjoy a portfolio career um, across uh, speaking, lecturing. Uh, I do some networking and I am an ICU nurse mainly working at night um, so that is uh, kind of me in a nutshell in the veterinary sphere. Uh, Daniel would you be able to introduce yourself please? Hi there I'm Daniel Dunness I'm also a veterinary nurse um, have been for 25 years um, I've worked in various different areas of the profession from um, being uh, an ICC nurse as well um, general practice, practice, head nurse, practice manager, um, area manager, and my current position is practice manager and independent practice in Kent. Thank you. And Emily? Hi, um, Emily. Um, probably on the slippery slope to a portfolio career now, having spent um, 10 years qualified vet, nine years in straight farm practice, and then last year, unfortunately, we had to close our farm department, and I found myself doing two days a week in our pig department because I was in a mixed practice, and two days a week working for our head office as um, part of one of the corporates in the policy and regulatory team. So, um, yes, doing a little bit of different stuff and uh, probably staying, staying in that diversified path. Thank you. And last but not least, Kirsty. Hi, I'm Kirsty Pickles. I am an equine medicine specialist. Um, I've worked both in private practice and um, academia. I currently work at the University of Nottingham Vet School. Uh, I'm also a mental health first aid instructor uh, and a neurodiversity advocate. So yes, also somehow seem to have sprung into a bit of a uh, portfolio career, which really uh, I'm also uh, a mum of two children. So. Uh, I'm juggling constantly. Thank you all. And thank you all so much for making this conversation today possible. I think it is one that thankfully we are having more, not only in the veterinary profession, but wider society now. Um, and it's very needed. So thank you in advance for your time and your candor. And I hope that this conversation is helpful to encourage curiosity, um, but also to uh, start further conversations in the veterinary sector. So without further ado, I think the most sensible place to start would be with defining what neurodiversity means to us as a collective, but also as individuals. Um, so to me, neurodiversity is the understanding that all of our brains are different 
that element of diversity in the way we think and the way our brains function. And for me, it's really important to have that clarity that neurodiversity also encompasses neurotypical brains. Right? So already a difference to the way my brain works. I wonder if anyone else has any definition for themselves as to what you believe neurodiversity means. My interpretation would be very similar. It's a, it's part of the human biological variation, and this, and it just pertains to how they, the brain works, and and you know, sort of how um, other aspects of a neurology works. Thank you, uh, Daniel. What do you believe neurodiversity means? How would you define it? Very similar to what you were just saying. Um, so. Neurodiversity to me is the fact that everybody is different. We all physically have a brain, but it's the way that we use it, every single person, whether they're neurotypical or neuronormal um, or neurodivergent, even within neurodivergency, our brains do not work the same. So it's just understanding that even though one person might have ADHD doesn't mean that they are going to have the same aspects of the ADHD that the next person has. So not confining people. Um, there's a very good YouTube video about the, the hats you wear. Um, everyone wanting the blue hats, everyone being a red hat wanting to be a blue hat. Um, it's a really, really good little video to kind of get people to see what neurodiversity is all about. I know the exact video you're talking about and I think it's brilliant. It's a really nice, simple way to yeah just just look at you know on the face of things how how that um it just illustrates it so well yeah it's um, so it's so simple but just brilliant there's a brilliant kids book which is exactly that concept as well which just teaches kids about difference and not needing to be the same as everybody else it's, mm. it's quite a powerful book how oh, nice um emily yeah, I think I've got very little to add, really. But I think it's I think it's the neuro bit that is quite important because I think we're all getting much. Well, I hope we're all getting much better and more aware with diversity generally. Um, but I think sometimes the neuro bit, because it's in our brains and it's invisible, um, isn't. It's not that it's neglected, but I think it, it it's even more important to to think about because, as I say, it's not it's not always so obvious. Um, and I think because a lot of sort of thought and action is 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 based on a perception, it it takes quite a lot of self awareness to recognise that neurodiversity. So it's it's um, yeah. And I think you know we, we all need to just you know as you say, neurodiversity is is just that it's diversity rather than recognising that everyone's different, even if we would categorise it as as normal. Thank you, thank you all. Um, yeah, I, I generally kind of caveat some of the conversations I'm now having with, you know, friends and colleagues when people ask what I need or what differences maybe I perceive um, that I have in practice or in communication by saying I've never had a neurotypical brain. I don't know how they work. So the conversation very much for me needs to be both ways so that I can understand the other person's perspective as well and so the conversation about neurodiversity um, is really powerful for that reason for me um 
I wondered if we could explore kind of how we got into um, the professions we're in, so two nurses, two vets, um, but equally, you know, both professions. I wondered um, your own personal journeys with, with looking at kind of scientific um, professions. Did you always know that you wanted to um, pursue a science-based career? Um, did that start in school? Where did it begin for you? Um, can we start with Emily? Yeah, okay. Um, I will be honest, I think I always wanted a career with animals. Um, uh, probably would have liked to have ridden horses um, or, or had cows, either or. Like, you know, growing up, I definitely was animal minded. Uh, my grandfather was a vet, but uh, unfortunately, he died before his time, and I don't have brilliant memories of him and his work uh but I think the first time I said I wanted to be a vet was sort of aged 11 when they um they opened their new equine hospital um at the practice that he he he, he owned um after he died and they opened it and I do remember telling people then that I was going to be a vet now I don't know almost whether that was that sort of slight autistic masking and without knowing it at the time and sort of wanting to fit in and say oh yeah yeah so like, I'm going to be a vet like grandpa was or or whether um I genuinely caught the bug there or whether I was just really excited because they had desert orchid opening it and I wanted to meet desert orchid you know um <laughs> I don't know uh but that's the first time I knowingly was headed down the vet pathway aged 11 um and one way or another I was that incredibly lucky child that was aiming for vet school that was scientifically minded heading for the right grades and wanting to work with animals and and therefore it all rather fell together and and I was the lucky re recipient of a of an offer for for vet school and never looked back never regretted so yeah I think it's probably whether it came from just being that typical little child that wants to be a vet but got lucky that could actually follow that pathway or whether it was just this deep down in the genes going to happen I don't know but it was it was purely my choice but yeah for, for first first mooted aged 11 opening the uh, John Quaver and Equine Memorial Suite <laughs> Shine House. Wow just wow um I can imagine it um as you said your granddad was quite the role model in some respects there because what an incredible start how amazing at 11 to look up to all those options. Um, Kirsty, what about yourself? Did you always know that the veterinary or science-based careers were, were where you wanted to, to end up? Um, I was definitely always animal orientated, um, which uh, I didn't come from an animal type background at all. Uh, my dad was a dentist, my mum was a housewife. Um, you know, we didn't have pets. My dad's really asthmatic, allergic to pets. And um, I just randomly decided um, about age nine that I wanted to ride horses. I think mum and dad had tried ballet lessons and um, piano lessons. And I was pretty clear that I didn't want to be doing those and um, kept asking to go horse riding instead. And eventually they relented, which they didn't understand because they knew nothing about horses at all but um found me some riding lessons and from then on I was absolutely horse obsessed from nine or ten and the story I've been told is at you know very early on I said I wanted to work with horses 
when I grew up and I wanted to be a stable girl. And um, I think it was suggested to me by my father that perhaps I could aspire a little higher. And how about being an equine vet? And from that time onwards, that was, I mean, it's, I, I look back and think this is so abnormal, but you know, I, this was a, a major clue that I was autistic basically, because from that day forward, my whole life revolved around becoming an equine vet to the point that age 11, I chose to go to a single sex school because I thought I would work harder at a single sex school, which I don't think is a normal way to really be thinking at 11. But um, yeah, I so from that day forward, everything was just focused on that. And, you know, fast forward, here I am. I love that. Emily, I worked at Chine House. Um, so I didn't know that connection there. That's that's really interesting. Well, yeah, I I am one of those baby cravens. Um, and was very lucky because I I did EMS and at Shine House, and I think Tom Lehman was quite happy to to corrupt a baby craven in the way that. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. I love how how connected the veterinary professions are. It, you you know we have these chance meetings so frequently it's incredible um Daniel what about you did you always know that the veterinary sector was was where you wanted to to develop your career yeah I think from the age of three my only job choice was I want to be a vet and my earliest memory of watching tv was all creatures great and small so and I remember the little practice that they had and um literally from that day every my whole life revolved around animals if we went out for the day if it wasn't revolved around animals I would make it revolve be revolved around animals and um I think it was Kirsty that said that she went to an all-girls school because she wanted to focus on education I did exactly the same thing I chose an all-boys school rather than a, a mixed sex school for exactly that reason um, and unfortunately, with my, I look back now and I understand what, if I'm not interested in something, I cannot retain that information. So GCSEs, I did absolutely fine. I did really well with my GCSEs, came to A-levels. If there was a part of the A-level I could not grasp or I wasn't interested in, I just could not retain it. So unfortunately, I didn't um, get my grades. I wanted to, to be a vet. Um, I did get accepted to vet school over in South Africa, but my parents couldn't afford it. So I came back to the UK and um, went to the Royal College and said, how, how can I get into being a vet? And they said, well, if you train as a vet nurse and, um, and sort of pass with credit, you almost sort of bypass all of the A-level students. So went to vet, so went to college passed with credit, the highest in my year, the highest of my um, practicals of my year. And, and at that point, I got a mortgage, I was about to get married, and life just took over. And I don't regret not becoming a vet, because I've had such a variable career. Um, but I always wonder what would have happened if I'd, if the education system was different to have supported me when I was younger, where I would be now. So it's really interesting isn't it because all three of us are probably later to our diagnoses and now see that we would have done things probably different potentially better in the education system if we'd yeah. known but no one knew these things at the time no. 
just got told if I could concentrate more, I'd do better. Yeah, if I, I remember seeing on a report card from school, if Lacey could apply her talent more. Yeah. Lacey had no interest in doing that. Um, and it just wasn't picked up. So similarly, I, I did well at school where I was interested. And because I did well, all the telltale signs that, that were there for my dyslexia, for example, um, were just never, they were noticed, but they weren't almost commented on. So things like I achieved well in uh, English language and literature, and I loved the creative side of things. So I really enjoyed literature, but I didn't read out loud in class. That was not something I did. I would avoid it. And as soon as I knew that in that lesson, that would even be an element, I shrunk and I went from being extroverted to trying to shrink as much as possible and be as quiet as possible and be busy doing something else. And so lots of the kind of signs were there, but because I was achieving and I was hitting all the grades they wanted, it just wasn't recognised. I grew up in a very animal oriented family um, and I did my work experience at Atavex because what I wanted to do was law and I didn't want to spend two weeks photocopying. Um, so I opted to go to a veterinary practice who were incredible. And the reason they were incredible is they were very practical. So for me on work experience, I got to see things and do things and have conversations about things. And it just fed my interest, but I still went down the route of law. I still went to college. I still wanted to do law um, and had been set to. I, because of the area I came from and it was socioeconomically not very well supported, um, I had the opportunity for a scholarship and everything was going great. But the reason it was going well is because I had the most phenomenal lecturer at college who was very dynamic, very animated, very interested in getting us to think about cases, not just the written um, law. And because she was so engaging, I was engaged. I wanted to do it. And I sat down to do my A-level um, paper and realised it was not for me. I was doing it for all the wrong reasons. I wanted to be successful. I wanted to achieve. Uh, and I actually didn't want law. I, I just enjoyed the subject because I had a really great mentor and got up and walked out. And at the time, everyone said, what are you doing? Uh, and walked into the closest vets and said, I want to be a, I want to be a vet nurse. Um, and out of sheer stubbornness, like most things I have done, um, when I was told no, it was, well, how can I? What can I do? And I think that's something that kind of has stuck with me. And it, it's really interesting hearing your perceptions of actually when someone tells us we can't do something, we're almost looking for the, well, how can I? Or I'll show you. Or because it's almost like in, in the same way as reading in class, well, I can do it another way. I don't want to read out loud, but I can still complete the work and I will do it in my way, in a different way, but I will, I'll achieve it still. And so I, I um, decided at 18 that veterinary medicine was for me. Um, 
and I haven't looked back I've really enjoyed it um, but it's really interesting because in terms of the widening participation piece I wonder how many people didn't find their way into veterinary medicine just because maybe we're looking for very academic markers um, that sometimes aren't a, a really clear indication in the way we actually examine um, at the younger levels before we get to further in higher education. Um, do you, each to each of you, do you believe that neurodiversity shaped um, entrance and your journey to vet med? Do you think that for just for applying, um, do you think it's had any bearing at all on your applications to vet school? Uh, Daniel, I know um, you've touched very, very nicely um, on South Africa. Um, I wonder if you don't mind expanding. Apart from the cost, were there any key differences in the application process? Massive, massive differences. They wanted to, they were looking at what work experience I've done, um, what my home life was, having um, references from um, people that I'd worked with, um, my teachers. Um, they looked at my GCSEs, but weren't as fussed about my A-level results. So um, they wanted to make sure that, so what their system is that because I would have been an immigrant, the first year you would do a Bachelor of Science, and I think everyone has to do a Bachelor of Science, so it would be from that course you would then go on to do the um, the veterinary um, degree. So I didn't have to get the grades to be a vet to go to that university. I just needed to get a minor pass to get to the Bachelor Foundation degree, which I passed. Really interesting, uh, Kirsty. Um, do you believe that? Um, your neurodiversity has shaped kind of your journey into vet med and and beyond as to where you are now with regard my journey into um i think the ability you know to hyper focus to be really determined you know i i had i remember my, in fact my head teacher telling me i had very black white thinking and there was a whole sh whole shades of gray that <laughs> that were also out there because I was so, you know, everyone was always telling me, well, there's other things you can do. You know, what about medicine and dentistry and all these kind of things? And, and I was like, well, no, I'm not interested. I just want to be a vet. Just let me get on with it. Um, so, you know, I was certainly dogmatic and inflexible in my thinking and and all that. Um, after getting it, it's interesting because actually my getting into vet school um, you know, back in the 90s, I went in 91, but my experience was very similar to what Daniel spoke about for, for South Africa. You know, they looked at, well, I mean, they did care about the A-levels, but they they certainly looked at what work experience had done. They asked me about that. They, um, they looked at references from all those people and were interested in all the other things I'd done as well. I mean, I, you know, this is Typical, I did Duke of Edinburgh just to put on my UCAS form, you know, because I thought it would look good for getting into vet school. Um, and 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 as for after um, vet school, yes, I, I, 
I think I didn't know I was autistic at the time, but I think, yes, subliminally, it definitely shaped the way that I went because um, I like structure, I like routine, so loved vet school. It was just an extension of school for me with that order and you knew what you were doing every day. Then, you know, graduated, went into practice and all that, you know, routine structure kind of disappears and and I really floundered. Uh, so, you know, went back to the system I knew, went back to university, um, did a residency, did a PhD, you know, loved that. That was learning again. This is my forte and um, found that I loved teaching, found that, found that I loved research. And that's shaped a large part of my career because, you know, although I didn't realize that why I was choosing those things and, and the, um, and the reasons behind that, I think being neurodivergent actually explains a lot of why I excel in those areas. Thank you so much. Um, Emily. Um, I, I love, I love Kirsty thinking that she needed to, I think we were told we couldn't, didn't have a chance of going to vet school unless we had our gold Duke of Edinburgh. So off we trudged up those hills. Um, but again, that's something I love because looking back, you know, it was sort of, it was the sort of thing I, uh, I thrived in. Um, yeah. Like, like the others I had, absolutely no idea I was autistic at the time not a clue um I mean we didn't really talk about autism in girls but what did I apply in in 07 wouldn't have recognized any of the signs and and the fact that I can you know in that really black and white thinking of what we all understood autism by that well no you you can hold a conversation you can mostly look people in the eye why why would you you know not 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 an option not considered um I don't think my autism was such um it would have been noticeable at school looking back you know I was I was very different I didn't really have any friends um very focused sort of very single-minded science vet um but I think I was at funnily enough we were, we were all at single sex schools I and mean, we, we, we were there because we were at the local girls school on scholarships um a, but, you know, I was never really going to fit in because I didn't really know how to conform to standard teenage girls. But also, you know, the rural kid that didn't fit in in the city, it, it, it didn't matter. But I was at such a sort of small niche school where it wasn't. Yes, I didn't fit in, but I was happy enough in, in my in my knot. Um, but I think because we were able to thrive as individuals it, it didn't shape anything so much as just carrying on and, and and going in but then when I got to that school I think it probably did a little bit more because suddenly I wasn't a really small fish in a big sorry a really big fish in a small pond it was slightly more the other way around and and actually you know my extreme perfectionism couldn't quite cope with university in quite the same way in that you know at school you know 100% was always achievable and um you know you'd be really disappointed with that 95 and suddenly at university you're like 65 wow cracking effort you've done really well today and it was like oh my god I'm never going to achieve here um and I did find that a bit harder but it but yeah I mean I think that neurodiversity just kept me 
you know, in a way, it's what made things hard, but in a way, it's what kept me going because it's just that focus, that drive um, that you just sort of go with and you, and you know you need to just sit down and focus. And, and yeah, I don't always focus. I can be very distracted at things, but when I'm going, you know, I'm doing things, I'm doing my master at the moment and I had took some time yesterday to write and I realised I had one of those days where the hyper-focus just kicked in. Um and I probably did more work in a day than I do in a month normally, you know, but doesn't always happen every day. But sometimes it helps. It's um, it's really interesting to see how kind of our flow of how we work might be different and how understanding how our um, individual work thrives and, and kind of what patterns work for us. Um, I know if I'm if I'm having to work on detail, I cannot do that for a prolonged amount of time, not on the same task, but I can do detail in multiple tasks in the same day really well. For me, I have to switch. So it's it's been really helpful learning kind of what what aspects of, of that focus. So, Emily, you said you, you got through so much yesterday when you're in that, but it's explaining to people that that is not every day that's not sustainable so that the people we work with know not to expect every single day that level lucky deadline. no I didn't actually but um I think home alone and turn my phone off because I find once I'm focused I'm focused but it's that and I know that's really typical on the autism isn't it where you where you read it's you know the distractions are, are quite big just a little distraction just somebody saying oh, oh oh do you want a cup of tea actually it's gone like it's yeah <laughs> um, amazing thank you all um now I'm keen um to note that when we talk about strengths um and weaknesses or, or things we don't favor when we talk about neurodiversity that we um that we recognize a sense of privilege in some respects as well so I, I won't use the word superpower because I think it um, takes away from um, the fact that, you know, as, as people who are working in a profession, we are already to a degree in a sense of privilege because we've been able to succeed in one way or another. Um, and there are lots of people who are neurodivergent whose brains have not allowed them to work in that way or the situation they are in hasn't allowed them to work in, in, in their best way. Um, and we've found ways that work for us, but if comfortable to do so, I think it's really important we um, touch on kind of some of the elements of our neurodivergent brains that we have found we can utilize um, to the best of our abilities, um, but also some of the ways in perhaps we have found things more challenging um, in the veterinary sector. Um, so I, I work nights and um, also a late diagnosis of ADHD, but I know that um, concentration um, and pointless stress. So by that, I mean the, the tedious things in each day I find incredibly frustrating, but in an ICU situation that um, stress that you know to think and to innovate and to problem solve I thrive on it's where I do I feel my best work um, and so I have learned that for 
my ADHD, I get incredibly frustrated by exceptionally busy ops days with lots and lots of electives, but I will thrive in a busy ICU where there's lots of different challenges and lots of different types of patients. And so I have sought out roles where I can utilize um, that innovation and problem solving and almost dyslexic thinking. I think lots of people refer to it as now, um, but I don't work charity practice in elective surgery days. I have a friend who is also neurodivergent and she loves an op day of electives because she goes in, she plans her day, she knows exactly what she's doing, she knows how long it's going to take and she absolutely adores as a nurse walking in, prepping everything and making her vet's day as stress-free as possible where where possible she likes it to run like clockwork she ensures everyone on that shift gets a break um, and if anyone is stood doing nothing she will ensure that that space is filled um, so we have on paper similar diagnoses but we work completely differently um, I wondered how you have found um, you are utilising knowing how your brain works as best as possible. Um, Kirsty, if we could come to you first, because I know you, um, as you said, you've, you've now working in academia, um, but you're also helping other people find kind of some of the things that work for them. Um, I wondered if you could um, elaborate on some of the kind of strengths and challenges um, that you've found. Uh, yeah, so, you know, as I was saying before, I kind of thrive in the academic environment because um, I, I like a little bit of, of different things, but I like knowing my schedule. I like knowing that um, on a Monday, this is what I do. I'll have some admin time in the morning. I'll teach every Monday afternoon. I like that routine. Um, I don't like that ad hoc stuff you were talking about with things flying at me from all directions that's that's a nightmare day for me and that's why um you know clinical practice when emergencies come in um and you might have two arrive at the same time i would really struggle to um to cope in that environment um my ability to hyper focus i i really hyper focus when i'm sitting at my desk so that if people come up behind me I'll be you know and just say hello I will leap like a foot in the air because I'm so engrossed in what I'm doing it, it freaks them out and I would you know because I'm so overreact it's ridiculous um I I think my attention to detail you know I, I am like a super proof reader because you know I I just you know my eye is drawn to like you know uh, really fine detail so all that kind of stuff is you know good in the research world I'm good at systemizing that kind of stuff um I think I'm I think I'm tenacious which has helped me you know get to where I am so they're all things that I you know would consider sort of parts uh, you know strengths that I have um I think more the challenging aspects of my autism would be um I have yeah, and it's funny because you don't realise this because you only know your own internal space. But, you know, it took me probably till my 40s to realise that I really struggled with anxiety. Um, 
but because I was always running at that is my husband calls this running hot, you know, because I always run at that heightened level, basically. Um, I didn't appreciate that other people weren't also operating at that really high sort of stressed, anxious level. So I can now appreciate that I will worry about things far more than other people. Um, I and, and I ruminate on things, which is, you know, not a great thing. So whereas somebody else might be able to put an anxious thought out of their mind, I will really ruminate on it. And particularly late at night, you know, it's just the worst time to be caught in a <laughs> in an anxious thought cycle. Um, but I, I find that um, probably over the course of my life, um, communication differences have caused me the most anxiety and the most challenge because when I think I'm communicating very clearly um, I'm communicating in a in a way that other people don't necessarily recognize and so um, for example at at a practice and um, the nurses told me that I was aloof and um, rude because I didn't come and do social chit chat in the morning with them to talk about what had gone on the night before whereas to me I was at work and I was there to work so I just came in and started work and I kind of the social nuance of like wanting to stand around and chat to other people was just completely lost on me I kind of you know would never have dreamt I, I, I would have considered that I don't know wrong because I wasn't working when I was in work I was merely standing around chatting um so being misunderstood by people I find quite hard um and and have you know I've been told that my communication skills aren't good on mm -hmm. several occasions and 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 that's just because I've been, it's been my communication style has been misinterpreted and, you know, what I would call just being direct and honest, somebody else would call rude and tactless. And I don't, when I speak, I don't imply any subtext whatsoever. So normally if offence has been taken, it's because a neurotypical person has put subcontext into what I said, which I didn't intend at all. Yeah. And, um, and if they actually come and talk to me about it, I'll be like, no, but that's not at all what I meant. Where did you get that from? And I, oh, well, I thought that's what you were implying. No, I can't do imply, you know, if there's something to say, I'll say it. Um, and, and so just, you know, that that's sort of probably what causes me most stress on a, you know, day by day basis. It's I, I found myself nodding along to everything you said. It's that that ruminating on things. I think sometimes. Sorry, what's the word? <laughs> I've never heard that word before. What's ruminating? Sorry. <laughs> no, no, do ask. Um, Chris probably eloquently put it much better than I can. Um, yeah, so it's just going over the same thought over and over again, not being able to, okay. to go past so, it. I guess it comes from like cows it comes ruminating. From, from cows <laughs> ruminating. So cows basically have their rumen, which is the sort of main vat of their stomach, where their food, um, you give them food. It comes back up. They reach it in their mouth, swallow uh, it. Okay. So, back down. So it is literally so that a cow ruminates in she, you know, cud balls come up from stomach, go back down, and I think overthinking, it's, it's, fixating. Yeah, and and it's one of these that I think is if you know neurotypicals would say therefore it's exactly like what these thoughts going round and round, but obviously you know 
we wouldn't always put that link in but that that's what yeah it's literally going to be based on on the, what a cow does with her with her silage brilliant <laughs> <laughs> i love that we've gone veterinary yeah. yeah, I mean, I can, I'll bet, remember that now forever. That way. does yeah, lectures in ruminating cows. Yeah. yeah, we will reflect on that in our CPD logs. Yeah, um, yeah sorry, that, so, sorry, whoever taught about cows ruminating, that was a really bad description. <laughs> <laughs> um, but it, it's true. Sometimes some of the things that have caused me most worry in my kind of clinical career and kind of outside as a, as a person, not just in scrubs, um, I'll, I'll worry about things three or four hours later after a, you know a quick comment where I've said oh can you just go and get the dog for me please and four hours later I'll go and say to that person I'm so sorry was I a bit short with you and they'll be like what are you on about what what do you mean when um, but I'll have thought about that for four hours which means for four hours I have not been concentrating on the task I was on because I'm so worried and deeply worried that I might have upset someone and they're oblivious. Um, so I, I think it's really, really interesting um, because sometimes the perception, and, and as we said, we're all fairly well read on the subject now because we're interested and we want to learn. And some of the earlier papers I read were, you know, that people didn't care or they didn't have the emotional capacity. And I was thinking, well, I have the opposite problem. I feel everything times 10. Um, so this paper does not reflect me. Um, so it's really interesting actually now that more open conversations are being had that I'm realizing that some of the things that I thought were me actually are causing quite a lot of distress to a huge number of people. Um, and I wonder how many people feel because they've always run hot um, are actually um, having a lot more to carry than they realised because we talk in the veterinary sector about mental health implications and anxiety um, but when we look at you know just the four people in this room working in the veterinary sector who identify as neurodivergent who potentially run hot where um, those links are and, and where the research will be coming. Um, Daniel what would you say kind of the Kind of strengths or areas where you thrived and actually some of the areas where things have been more challenging yeah i think the main thing and this is a double edge to it so i have a photographic memory but i only have a photographic memory of things i'm interested in so <laughs> like i can reel off you nearly every single latin name of an orchid i have in my collection and i have over three thousand orchids Again, that's a part of my ADHD and autism. I can't remember the common names. I've got no interest in the common names. So I only want to know the Latin names. And I remember when I was at school, I wanted to learn Latin. And they're like, why do you want to learn Latin? I mean, because it makes sense. It's the only language to me that made sense because it says exactly what it is. Um, so yeah, but on the other side of that, if I'm not interested in it, it's not going in. Cardiology, I've got no interest in cardiology. You can tell me you're blue in the face what the little wiggly lines mean and i physically cannot remember but the reproductive system of a orchis apifera i can i could sit and talk for hours for so it's 
and and, I, and like weight clinics and um, exotics is my thing that I've an an ECC. So I would literally used to run um, exotic and weight clinics um, when I was head nurse, and I always overrun because I would get too involved and explain and over explain everything to the clients. But the clients always came out going, "Yeah, that's a lot of information," but wanted that at the same time, and. A part of that, and we were the rumination, um, overthinking, lack of sleep. I, from when I started working, so from 16, I don't think I've had a week of normal sleep in my whole life. Um, last night, I slept about four hours. Um, previous two nights, didn't sleep at all because I'm just sitting in bed and my brain's just whirling, whirling and whirling and whirling and whirling and whirling, and there's nothing I can do to switch it off. I'll I've been prescribed sleeping tablets and I'll sit there, take the sleeping tablet. Four hours later, brain's still going. Um, and it's like that procrastination and always worrying that if I've done something to offend somebody, um, you speak to a client and they're upset, or is it something I've done? And you, you, it's always me. You always, and I think that's a part of the autism and ADHD where everything gets turned around to being you. And you don't mean to, but then everyone thinks, well, why does everything have to be about you? I've come to you to tell you about my problem, but you've turned it on me. And yet but, I'd go, I was only trying to empathise with you. I was trying to make you understand, understand how I, how I can understand how you feel it. But their, their paradigm is that I'm now talking about myself. And that was never the intention. I was never trying to turn every single conversation around to me. It was, and that was more, as I've become a manager, that's become more and more apparent that I do that. And I try, and as I'm doing it in my head, I'm going, stop, stop. And yet something else kicks over and it's really difficult to stop that and not to overtake a conversation, not to butt in when I'm not invited, not to over talk somebody, not to over explain all the time. However, those things at certain times are a benefit as well. But don't so what, that's because you've been conditioned almost that when communication goes wrong, it is your fault because you're the neurodivergent one, because that's the sort of lazy aspect that I think that's where it is also that you're conditioned to think it's your fault. So then when it is that, you automatically get paranoid that it's your yeah. fault. Paranoia is horrendous. But it's the easy option for people to take, isn't it? If a neurotypical person and a neurodivergent person have a communication breakdown, it's always the neurodivergent's fault. Yes. Maybe yeah. less so now because people are getting more aware, but we've all grown up leading to believe it's always our fault that it went wrong. Therefore, yeah. I think it makes you more paranoid that it is your fault that it went wrong. Well, we're the minority, aren't we? So, you know, the always. system the system is always set up by the majority for the majority. Is is you know, like the school system. You know, if, if you're neurodivergent at school, I think it's really hard. Um but I, um, I do think that the, you know, a lot of work's been done on this area um, recently that, you know, the so-called double empathy uh, problem whereby we, we, so traditionally it was thought of that um, autistic people lacked empathy. Uh, no, they're sociopaths. They're, they're the people that lack empathy. Um, and when the, so there's actually been a study looking at communication between different groups of people, neurotypical to neurotypical, neurotypical to neurodivergent, and um, autistic to autistic. And actually the best communication was between the autistic to autistic group because they just got straight to the point. You know, it was just 
you know, easy transfer of information. Um, it was okay, neurotypical to neurotypical, but things got missed because there was other stuff going on as fluffy. well as the basic get, transfer of information. I don't information. get the fluffy. I hate this fluff. Everything, like my emails take me forever to write because I have to fluff them up. Yes, so thank I, you I, for your email. Have a nice yeah. day. Thank you yeah. very much for explaining that to me. But then I, I have to, to write an email and then go back and think, now, what do I have to add to this to be OK for the other person? But yeah. there's there's two sides to it, though, because I like it direct and I like it um, and I want to speak direct. And as you say, I have to go back and fluff up the email and go, oh, I must put a dear so and so. in a. But then also, I think because I always worry about fitting in and I always worry that I'm in the wrong and I and I've let myself down or I've let stuff down. I then take any criticism in return very personally as well and it's that kind of you know and someone can be quite blunt in their criticism so if they're really nice to me I'm like oh I think they might want something because I don't deserve this but then if they're a bit blunt with me and actually tell me my failings I'm like oh my god I failed the whole world's ending and it's it's um you know and it and and really life probably should be somewhere in the middle but um but we're at the opposite ends of everything. We don't do that yeah, middle yeah. bit. It's either with, all with, or nothing. With the extreme views that go with, yeah. you know, and, and you know, I, I, I want to be open and honest with other people, but sometimes that honesty isn't isn't great when it comes back because I don't want to know that I got it wrong, even though I've probably worked out for myself, you know, I can tell you it was all wrong and all the rest. But when someone goes, oh, no, 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 you can't communicate. Like, oh, my God, I failed a life and I can't do it. I just wondered just to just to kind of pick that up I wonder when we kind of talk about and reference masking whether the kind of reaction to communication because we have spent quite a long time working in living in or trying to work to systems built neurotypically whether because we are trying to work out what is wanted from us whether that's in a communication style or a work style or a process so often that um that masking element and trying to conform in a neurotypical way or trying to fit the system whether that encourages that that feedback in a way that's not helpful so I have for the last year um, because I was taking things like emails uh, really hard I found emails really difficult which meant I just didn't answer any of them because that was easier because I found it really really overwhelming so now if I have a new working relationship with somebody and I know it's not something we can do with with many of our clients or service users but I start the conversation with how do you prefer your communication um, because I work with some people who rather me just pick up the phone because they can tell my tone a five minute conversation won't be a thread of 30 emails that I'm not going to follow. Um, equally, I work with some people who actually just want some bullet points and then they work through them really quickly. And I find that those emails, because I've asked how they prefer their communication, comes back in a way that resonates with them more. So that if there is a real difference of communication styles, at least we both know from the beginning. Um, and it's actually helped with managers in other aspects where they know actually something's something's jarring. Let's 
talk about it, let's see what we can do um, to kind of meet in the middle. Um, is, is in terms of the communication piece, is that anything that you have found you've altered to kind of have to mask less? Um, is that something you're trying or you've tried or could consider? Yeah, well, I mean, personally, I think you're always trying to subconsciously or consciously manipulate any situation to work for you aren't you because whether you've worked out why you do it or not I mean I always um I don't thrive on the unknown I like those routine days I hate my phone ringing and I hate my phone ringing even more when I don't recognize the number and it's like oh god I don't know who it is what do they want or then you've got like you look at your client ringing and you go oh my god the client's ringing and he probably wants to ask if you'll bring a bottle of betamox to the visit or something you know in, instead of which you're like oh my god that cow i did a cesarean on six months ago has gone wrong like oh my god what's he want and i'd almost find myself not answering the phone waiting to listen to the voicemail and then ringing them straight back and being like i'm really sorry i missed your call how are you yes um, so yes i will do a lot of my conversation by email I'm aware the fact that if you pick up the phone, most of the time you'll achieve what you want to do quicker, easier, all the rest. Um, but it's not, um, you know, so, but I'd rather do it by email. But then I, I think I'm all right at picking up the phone myself because I can control it. But actually, it was yeah. funny. Then someone said to me the other day, you know, by do you mind if you don't call? Because I find it quite stressful and I'd rather everything was done by email. And it was almost like she was really embarrassed to say it to me. And I just went, yeah, I get that. That's fine. I work like that, too. Email it is easy. Um, so, yeah, of course, you of course, you do your your communication to suit. Um Obviously, there's certain things you can't control as, as a vet. You always have to answer your phone. If the office is ringing, it doesn't matter how stressed you are. You, you know that you it might be an emergency call. You have to take it. And, you know, then you have to learn to process that in your own way of like, oh, my God, now my whole day's changed. Don't have a don't have a meltdown. People think that's weird at 33 when you're having an autistic meltdown in your car because you've got to go and carve a cow, which actually, let's be honest, in an hour's time when you've carved said cow and the calf's alive, you're going to have the most biggest adrenaline buzz. And everyone's going to be like, see, what were you stressed about? Um, you know it's erratic, you know it's not erratic, irrational, you know it's not, but it's, it, I think it's the autism creeping out, isn't it? And it's the not thriving on the unknown. But yes, I mean, absolutely manipulated my communication to work for me to the limits of what you can control within veterinary practice. Do you think we need to normalise that more? and you know what I think it's great the way you've said I asked the question outright and I mean why can't we ask the question outright because it's not actually asking are you neurodivergent and that's just even you know we're all getting better at saying what color we are in that kind of we all know you know and it's it's that great mantra isn't it you know um the biggest failure in communication is is the thinking that it's taken place but also um was it Caroline Crow that says isn't it it's the um you shouldn't communicate how you want to communicate you need to communicate how others want you to communicate but I think that's all becoming a lot more normal and you know and even someone goes oh well I'm very red and you go okay right fine I need to be a bit more direct with them or um you know it's that yeah it's but it's it's not asking are you different in that sense because we all yeah. know we're different we all know we've got different personality styles different communication styles so it's actually just 
making sure that we're communicating effectively, efficiently and to each other. But that but that's just a courtesy we need to extend. And that's not just because we're autistic or ADHD or, or dyslexic or anything else. Yeah. That's just a, we're all different as human beings and, and, and actually working with people how they want to be worked with. But no, I think I, I'm going to take that home. And actually, when I start working with people, say what works for you, because um, yes, I know yeah. some of my, my, my direct emails are jarring, um, but at the same time, yeah didn't always think that you need to know you can pick your audience as to who you write the flowery essay to that would be useful thank you i think it's it's been really helpful actually to listen to you as well um because it gives me perspective because i am very yellow <laughs> very yellow um, so, but even just understanding um, obviously there's different schools of thought for profiling but even just understanding if that's how I'm perceived has allows me to understand that actually my style might be really jarring for someone else and just just being able to sit with that and be like oh okay just to pick up on the, the question for you as well Emily um, I wonder what are some of the things that you know um, as a, with your neurodivergent brain you have been able to utilize as as strength to your yeah. uh, benefit and also some of the things potentially that you have found more challenging other than email um so i think for me it's um i do have quite a lot of clarity in my thought and i'm one of these people that um probably i'm not a natural leader in that normal sense of the word um and sort of wouldn't push myself forward but then I think somewhere where it probably I can keep that clarity of thought the whole way through so probably could spend my whole life in a state of panic therefore my my level of clarity of thought is is is, is steady state um so it's amazing how I can find myself being that leader in a stressful situation which I think has been quite helpful as a vet because you know that's quite a scary thought to some that at 23, 24, you're chucked out of college with an RC, MRCBS and said, oh, by the way, you're in charge of, of that situation now that you're the vet. Um, and you know, to me, that was quite intimidating, but it's amazing how I found myself doing things. You know, and it's sort of things like, you know, I'm doing an animal well, um, welfare you know, ethics masters now. And become, I mean, I was always aware of what Temple Grandin was saying and doing and, and thinking she was amazing. But actually, the more you read, the more you go, well, this is normal. This is logical. Like, can't, you know, and, and it's even just sort of looking at a picture, you know, you need to sort of go on Facebook and look at pictures of people's horses and um, and you can see the whites of its eyes and it's, you know, its ears are forward, but it's it's quite stressed. And you, and you look at that and go, and everyone's like, oh, isn't it a lovely picture of Lucky? And I'm like, oh, God, it's really stressed. Um, and I think I've always had that clarity that I can see that and but I hadn't really appreciated until I did all my reading and research that actually that's possibly the autistic brain coming through rather than um, rather than the um, uh, sort of normal because that's the thing we've all grown up neuro neurodivergent we only know our own brains and and it's only when you get enough self-awareness to know that it's different or that you've had the confidence to speak to someone openly enough to go 
is this normal? What's going on in my head? And they're like, oh my God, no, that's, that's not normal. You know, and then they say, we're all really different because like Daniel's saying he doesn't sleep. Well, I'm the opposite. I spent my life so wide that when I hit them, my bed, my God, I, I'm gone. Like I, I <laughs> sleep, you know I mean? I sleep track on my Garmin. I get a sleep score of excellent every night. Um, but you know what, well, even with that, even with this extreme level of sleep, I'm permanently tired, you know, and that's, you know, it's, and everyone's like, oh my God, how are you sleeping again? And I'm like, I'm shattered. And everyone's like, really? <laughs> yeah. Um, so, so, you know, and that's sort of probably exactly the same point, but manifesting itself in a completely opposite way. Yeah. Um, you know, it's both because we're so wide, but, you know, Daniel's finding that stops him sleeping. Well, I'm fine. That makes me sleep. Um, you know, and I think it's, you know, so yes, you know, my extreme, you know, I have this extreme perfectionism. And that means in some ways I'm brilliant at my job because I will put so much effort in. I will try. I care. I care so much about what I do. I will really push forward and get everything done. And, and you know, and I think clients value what I bring to that. Um, the opposite end of that is extreme perfectionism. You spend your whole life worrying about things. You've probably got that healthy level of paranoia that, that we've all talked about. And as you say, that over empathy of like, because you're so conditioned, is it, is it my fault that this went wrong? And what did they think? And did I successfully mask? Or do they think I'm a weirdo? Oh God, I perhaps ought to find an excuse to speak to them just to check they don't think I'm a complete weirdo. Uh, this sort of perfectionism, paranoia, um, it's exhausting. Um, and yes, I probably have had a degree of burnout. Um, this level of you know it manifests itself as anxiety it's um and yes when you get to that degree you know when everything's firing in one direction and you're I wouldn't say thriving because it's not necessarily you are but you aren't it's going and it's grand and everyone thinks that you're brilliant and then you get to the bit where you're slightly burning out and you're slightly struggling and then it comes down to exactly what you just said Lacey and almost in extreme procrastination and and you go oh God, I can't do this justice. And oh God, I'm really not feeling it. And 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 then you realize that you haven't responded to that email and somebody's chased it and chased it. And then you start to think, I'm too embarrassed even to email, reply to it. So I'll just like completely ostrich, you know, become an ostrich and bury my head in the sand and and please can it go away? And then and then you just spend your whole life with a slightly paranoid, guilty conscience. Do you think yeah. that's a degree of... Um, we, um, imposter syndrome or imposterism as because they've always like using the word syndrome where you oh, never feel syndrome um <laughs> yes but i think i i'm not a big fan of imposter syndrome because i feel it and i feel it all the time but it's almost like this cool thing to have now isn't it that we, we've sort of normalized it and um yes I definitely feel like an imposter all the time and how on earth have I got a vet degree and I'm and I'm standing here but then I sort of could also shock myself and go but I am standing here diagnosing this cow like yeah. who is this person talking that says yeah. it's you know um but yes I think it's it's definitely a degree of the imposter syndrome but I think that's, that's what I mean do you think that's the neurodivergent aspect of it I know that they use that term but I yeah. don't think of it as being separate from my neurodiversity. I no, think that is I a think, part of my neurodivergency. Yeah, for me, that's probably the permanently masking, um, the permanently masking autistic is desperately trying to 
fit in with a with a degree of perfectionist. So not only do I need to fit in, but I actually need to like do a really good job of fitting in. Um, and I'm not quite getting there, am I? So yeah, I, sh- I don't deserve this place at the table. And you know, and you're even sitting here going, "Oh God, am I autistic enough to be sitting here right now?" Like, it's that fine line, isn't it, between what people deem successful but use the word thriving, and you're like, "I'm succeeding." But in doing this succeeding, I'm actually using all of my energy. So I'm not thriving because I deem thriving to be living comfortably and doing well and, you know, being okay. Um, For me, thriving is just, you know, being settled, being content, whereas success and thriving are really different for me in the way I, I perceive them and feel them. And I think I'm this terrible person that's always been very goal driven. Yeah. And being that very guilty of that, I'll be happy when. But to that extent, I never really knew. And it's probably this really busy, hyper focused brain that, you know, possibly the ideal would be just to be sat on the sofa at the weekend, curled up with with a husband and a dog and and all the rest in that sort of but but I don't know how to 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 do that and so I just do oh well I'll just do another master's degree or oh I'll just do another you know um I remember being very envious of my sister who was happy to be a housewife and (laughs) she you know I just thought god if you could like to be content yeah to, to to do that that's amazing because I always you know everything you've said just really resonated Emily and you know I just never felt that I knew enough to be a decent equine vet so I go back and do my residency I do a master's I do a PhD I do my diploma and even at the end of that when I'm a diplomat when I'm a senior lecturer I still didn't feel I knew enough because there would still be cases that would throw me and I would still feel like I was not good enough it, it was just incredible. Um, you know, it just was endless. Um, you know, and I've, I've seriously thought about leaving the profession several times, numerous times, because I just thought I'd, you know, I, I am not good enough to do this. I can't do this. Then I don't feel good enough to do anything else. Yeah. Well, yes. Yeah. I, I absolutely agree with you on that. And I still don't feel good enough. And I, and I sort of, everything I do I I wonder like what am I doing here but um yeah it's it's and it's it's an awful thing to say because I don't want to say it and I go I don't know how to be normal like but you know and and I did this like I do a lot of athletics judging and for me that's because and it's with my busy brain I don't need time to stop and think anyway that's that's bad news that that that's going to liable for a meltdown um but I liked that because that meant that my free time was structured and I would get up on Saturday morning, I'd go to the track and I would go and like lead, you know, lead a throws competition or something. And it's, it's process, you know, you go and you greet the athletes and you're like, I'm leading this event today. So this is what we're going to do. And this is how you judge a competition. It was perfect. That's, that's my idea of perfect downtime. Um, yes. Unstructured helped. downtime is I find very, fun. very difficult. And, oh. I don't know what to do. <laughs> when people <laughs> Become an athletics official. I promise you, Kirsty. Your weekends are sorted for a whole year in advance. You go My to kids. Bed, you're handed a timetable. You just follow the instructions. But and if we well, all meditated more, 
if we all sat quietly and meditated more, that would really help our neurodivergent brain. I do, I don't know I do meditate. I don't have downtime. I've got so many hobbies. And if when I get bored of a hobby, I'll start a new hobby because otherwise that downtime to me, if I'm just sitting at home, I'm like, I need to do something. I, I can't sit still. I, I need to get out and do something. I've got probably about 15 hobbies. Um, yeah, my parents always used to take the mick out of me moving through phases, but I think that probably is the, you know, and they still refer back to them, oh, is that that phase? And I'm a bit like, oh, be nice now. You know, it's part of my autism. You, you have to be nice about it now. And they're like, no, no, you went through phases. It was annoying. And then, you know, if I get ent enthusiastic about something now, they're like, it'll pass. <laughs> I just love how there's so many similarities between the four of us, but also polar opposites which goes back to the very point we made at the beginning of it is diversity in the same vein as some people have brown hair there is light brown hair mousy brown hair dark brown hair chestnut hair and we we've all got similarities but we actually find that the ways in we, which we work can be incredibly different and some of the things that some of us find our strengths are actually something that others are finding more energy intensive. Um, I wonder, taking a look from a different perspective for a moment, if, you know, we've talked about how we feel in the profession. I wondered if I could throw the question out as to how we support neurodivergent clients, service users, um, as a kind of a, a starting point. Do you think we consider neurodivergent clients, service users. Um, Kirsty, for you, uh, I know you're doing quite a lot of work with students to try and make the support better because, you know, they are um, the people you're often supporting when you're working non-clinically in academia. Um, do you think we firstly acknowledge that, you know, we are neurodivergent professionals in the veterinary sector, but what about the people coming to us for help? Do you think potentially that when we are encouraging widening participation in the profession, we stand a chance of making care more accessible. Who wants to pick that one up first? It's a bit of a, a broad question, uh, I'm afraid. I, I'll, I'll start with that if you want, because um, we, we, are, we do lots of work now uh, regarding accessibility of materials for students so sort yeah. of taking sideways some of that stuff um because you know now you need to think about different well universal design of learning is a is a proactive approach to student accessibility rather than reactive so rather than waiting for a student to have a problem you set it up in a way that is accessible to everybody so you know multiple ways of accessing material participating that kind of thing um, not being in practice much at the moment. I, I only have a, a one day a fortnight in clinics at the minute. Um, but I think there's certainly masses more that could be done for clients um, in giving them information in a way that is useful to them. You know, thinking about improving. Um, oh, what's the... Oh, the the words gone from my head. You know when um, clients do what you what you want them to do. What's that? That's compliance. 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 Needs to go in the bin, never to be seen again. 
Were yes. they compliant or was it attainable? Yes, exactly. So I think vast strides could be made in that if we just asked a simple question, how would you like this information given to you? You know, um, do you want written instructions? You know, verbal instructions? Do you need a phone call? You know, whatever. I think, yes, I think there's huge amounts that could be done. Thank you. Uh, Daniel? It's actually something that I, in my previous role, I started trying to make an initiative. So we had a client phone up and we had, like most practices now, a healthy pet club. Mm -hmm. And she didn't see the benefit of the healthy pet club. So she wanted to cancel it. She cancelled it without asking us first. And then we whacked her with this bill because she'd only spent, she'd only paid four months, but she'd had all of her vaccinations, the flea and worming products. So we whacked her with this bill and she went, absolutely off her rocker going why am I now having to pay this and the response of the clinic at the time was well it's all in your terms and conditions and the lady there was a bit of to in and fro from the practice and um she she mentioned in one of the emails that I picked up on that she was dyslexic so I gave her a call and I was talking to her and she said, look, I am quite severely dyslexic and some of the communication that I've been getting from the practice has been quite difficult to understand. So I actually let my barriers down and actually said, look, so am I. And I understand the struggles that you go through. So let's try and break this down. So how would it be easiest for you to have understood this information? What, can, what could I have done better or what could we have done better to, for you to have understood that. And by talking to her, I went back to our head office and I said, every time a client comes in, can we not send them, however they want to receive it, whether it be in a text or a, a, a written invoice, a breakdown of what they've come in, what they've received in their discount, what they paid, and then a tally of what services they've used so that they constantly are getting that information then we don't have to worry about if people are dyslexic or ADHD we don't need to worry about the age of the client because we're giving everybody the, the information that they need at the time and it's not about equality it's about equitability it's giving what they need at that moment not what we feel they need and unfortunately it got ignored um, they weren't really interested in going forward with the um, the pro with the um, project that we, me and this other member of staff were trying to promote. Um, but and it's from that is I'm sure you're probably all aware of One Healthcare and being able. I'm such a strong promoter of the One Healthcare, and you talk to so many people in the profession, they have no idea what it even is. Um, and at one point, I was looking at being a district nurse just because. Um, district veterinary nurse um, and setting that up as a business in my area to try and link that gap between the client and and the veterinary profession so that there isn't this them and us that you can go in and you can speak to them you, you can help them where the help is needed rather than there being this big to us it's not a barrier but to clients it is a barrier coming through our front door giving us a phone call giving us an email they see us they almost put us up on a pedestal and sometimes they feel too silly to speak to us about things. Whereas if you're going into their home, 
you can see the environment they're at, you can see how they're coping, you can see how they're not coping, what support they need, and we can help them rather than it all being down to the client. We can take some responsibility for that help. Sorry. No, no, don't apologise. It's a really important perspective. And it's, um, I think, very, very easy, particularly in small animal, but do um, correct me if I'm wrong, but it's very easy for us to forget that there's a huge number of pet owners and um, pet advocates and carers in the UK who never access veterinary care, ever. Um, and so if it isn't made more accessible, more equitable, um, to even just come and have that first conversation and it feels really daunting, then there are a huge number of animals who we are not reaching, whose welfare could be impacted adversely just because it didn't feel accessible. Even though we could stand in a clinic and say it's perfectly accessible, we can do walk-ins. There are receptionists that are really skilled to have a, a quick conversation. There are nurses, there are vets, there are you know these entire teams. But if it doesn't feel accessible, whether that's perceived or literal, then there's going to be loads of animals whose welfare are implicated. And Emily, you picked up on um, some of the piece about Temple Grandin um, and that some of the work that Temple did actually improved welfare vastly. And now we look and go, well, obviously this is really simple. These are really simple interventions. I just wonder if sometimes um, we don't recognize that from a, from a place of, of privilege most of us have had animals and have taken them for veterinary care um, but we're in a clinic all the time we're used to those clinical settings that look clinical smell clinical have bright lights have lots of noise and actually that might be really daunting even just to pick up the phone um emily how does it um how does it um transpire in large animal and mixed practice Would yeah you say i think for large animals, it's a little bit different because we're mostly ambulatory. So we're going out to our farmers and obviously the animal to human ratio is much skewed yeah. um, the other way. And, and I think the other thing that, that that's what's really worked for me is you've got continuity. Like, yes, of course, you're going to meet clients for the first time all the time. Of course yeah. you are. But on a standard day in farm practice you know you, you could see anything from one to maybe six clients you'd probably call six visits a really quite busy day yeah. um that's completely different to small animal practice um and so you do get um on the whole you get to know your clients a lot better and the sort of communication is is, is different because of that um I think on the other aspect I think we probably have more neurodivergence in what in what we see rather than less um hard to know because most of them are undiagnosed but I mean that you know a lot of farmers written skills and I'm not being judgmental here aren't always that great unfortunately we're still dealing with a generation because you know farmers and aging population a lot of our farmers are probably 60 plus still we're probably still dealing with a generation that think they're stupid rather than actually understand they're dyslexic because they've grown up very much in a society that you can't read and write particularly well 
go out and play football. You're only going to be a farmer. Don't worry about it. Um, the massive generalization, but I think there is still a huge, huge subset of the farmers that we're dealing with that are of that mindset, which is tragic, absolutely tragic. The society has failed them so badly, but they have thrived as farmers and it shows what, you know, and they'll still tell you proudly that I'm really stupid and I haven't got any O-levels and I haven't got an education because I was too stupid to go to school. And you go, yeah. And and do you realize what it takes to be a farmer now? And actually this is a very, very, you know, you can deal with all these sprays and you can do your medicines book and you can do your, you know, actually, yeah, keep telling me you're stupid and then look at what you're doing and you are not stupid. No. Um, but it's, you know, and I think, you know, I, I became aware quite early on and, you know, a couple of times you're slightly pushing for a piece of paper and it's not coming, it's not coming. And you say, would it help if we did it together? And they, oh, you know, suddenly that barrier is just like, yeah, 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 come in for a cup of tea and we can do it. And you suddenly realise that actually not very comfortable writing it down. You know, you'll get all the information in the world if you've got the pen and paper and you let them, you know, so I think I got much better at communicating because of that. And I think, you know, I'm I'm talking in 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 gross um stereotypes here. There's you know, there's all sorts in farming, but I do think we do meet these personalities and 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 I hope, but probably some of that is that I'm neurodivergent, so I'm a lot more empathetic in recognizing in other people and going, mm, it is he really just refusing to engage in this, or is it that he sort of can't but doesn't want to tell me that? So let's let's try a different tactic. And when you realize you get a great response, you realize it's it's that, you know, extreme procrastination because it's hard or because I sort of can't. But I don't want to actually put my hand up and say to some 25 year old girl, by the way, I actually find reading really hard. Um, Nobody's ever told me I'm dyslexic, but I probably am, you know. But that that assistance to those farmers to build that rapport, to have that open communication probably has welfare implications far oh, beyond undoubtedly. and we're we're so privileged we can have that you know yeah. much harder for um you know for that small animal situation for daniel you know, that, that, one so time that, that you 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 know you suspect there's a lot of underlying issues but you've got no chance that you're never going to see them again let alone find that way of just subtly getting in whereas with a farm you know if you're seeing them every week for a routine you can build great rapport and and actually in three, four weeks that you, you probably can build up to asking that slightly more personal question that you, you know, you feel is a black and white question to ask, but you know that social etiquette says you probably need to wait a week or two to say it, you know. There's so much to be learned there, isn't there? So much that we can learn from from large animal in those conversations that are actually on the face of it, very, very simple. The, the premise of them is really simple, but it's, it goes back to a lot of the communication challenges that we've found as individuals where actually the biggest barrier is that people are too worried to have the conversation to start with. Um, I wonder how many of our diabetics in small animal, Daniel, actually haven't been very well controlled. And actually, when we drill down into it, if we'd have just given a person, for example, a chart or instead of coming in and having a consult in a in a clinical practice whether we'd given them a video on youtube to go away and watch and then come in and ask questions just different we ways go to their to home them. and yeah we've always yeah. been so i think small animal practice was so anti-house visits because it takes time away from the practice and the amount of time associated with it that and covid didn't help with that that 
we are now to the point where we do very few house visits as a, as a small small animal practices um, and probably even less now post-COVID as well. Um, we are happier to do things on the telephone and video, which is brilliant because there is a different way. We have some clients that didn't want to come into the clinics, clinics clients that we'd never seen before, but offer them a telemedicine consult and they wouldn't leave us alone. And it was amazing that. So we definitely are changing, but it's just, in my eyes, it's too slow. I think we're at a really interesting pivot point for, for communication in so many different ways. Thank you all so much. I've, my brain is buzzing in all the right ways. Um, just to wrap up, I wonder from each of you, when we talk about neurodiversity and neurodivergent brains, if you could, if you could impart one piece of advice or one thing that you wish people understood a little bit better for you personally what would it be what would you say to someone or what do you wish people maybe understood more about neurodivergent brains um Kirsty if we could come to you first well my first kind of response to that would be neurodiversity awareness but that's probably too that I think that's a bit of a cop-out that's too big a thing so if if I come smaller focus to that um I would say um to understand neurodiv the way that neurodivergent people can communicate um would you know that that's one thing I wish was better understood thank you um Daniel it's funny because coming in and out of all different things and talking to people and then being asked a direct question like that, which normally I can just go, it isn't, it's a really difficult question to directly answer. Um, mm -hmm. But I think Kirsty is definitely sort of on that route where I think the communication by nature, we are a species that wants to communicate non-verbal and verbal. And sometimes there is that miscommunication because we don't understand and I think it is not being a cop-out but having that understanding that sometimes the communication is going to be different from people but irregardless of whether we're neurodivergent or not that everybody's communication will be slightly different um, and one um, one thing that I've, someone said to me is their um, daughter was diagnosed as being a little bit autistic and my response was, you can't be a little bit pregnant. You either are or you're not. So it's actually knowing what they're talking about would probably be. So if someone is autistic, they understand what that is rather than going, oh, so you're just a little bit autistic or you're just a little bit ADHD is what just winds me up. Yeah. Thank you. Um, Emily. Yeah, it's like people when you move something, they're like, oh, you're being a little bit OCD. It's like, no. I'm not OCD. I'm just being tidy. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I think I think it's it's a similar idea to what the other two have said, but I think it's a case of recognize, but change that focus from it's not wrong, it's different. Yeah. And A, then you'll probably judge what I want and what everyone else wants, because everybody is on the spectrum to some degree. It's a spectrum for a reason. It's just that we're more extreme on one end. Um, 
everyone wants communication differently, but recognize that it's different and not wrong. And I think that would take out this sort of blame culture with it, because I think everyone is very on the defensive a lot of the time with the neurodivergent. And so if we get communication wrong, oops, sorry, I've, I've done it myself. There you are. If communication breaks down, it, it often feels like it's because we've got it wrong. We're being defensive. Um, but then if you also say to someone that this is really isn't working for me, they, they will then get very defensive because then you, they feel like you're telling them that you've, they've got it wrong. And it, it's not that at all. And, you know, sometimes people get it completely. You know, they, they say something that they think is just perfectly normal. And I go, oh, my God, that's completely wound me up. And I'm so anxious now. And they're like, whoa, 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 whoa where did that come from? This wasn't meant to freak you out. And I'm like, well, it kind of has. Um, but it's OK. It's not wrong. It's just can you stop thing? And, and I think if we, if we if we just had that different but not wrong then I think everyone would stop and be able to have much more open conversations and you would make a lot more progress rather than the same things being repeated because everyone goes, oh, well, you obviously said I got it wrong, gets defensive and then blocks against. And then I think probably I would just say to everyone, like, you know what, even if you do feel a bit different and you're diagnosed, whatever, just just remember everyone's got a place in the world. And, you know, at school or whatever, growing up, I didn't fit in. You know, I was happy enough, but I didn't fit in. And then, and then, you know, when you come into the world of work and you'll find friends, you'll find, you know, and, and actually we are all different. Um, yes, there's probably things that annoy the hell out of people that I do, but I hope I bring quite a lot of positive stuff. And I think that's the point. You know, we we do all have a place in the world. We do all fit into that big jigsaw of life. And, you know, just because you're different, you'll thrive. Thank you. Thank you all so much. It has been incredible to speak to you all I think for me I would encourage people to have curiosity but curiosity with compassion it's understanding that yep we are all different but that is whether you're neurotypical or neurodivergent and to be able to be curious enough to have open conversation while being respectful to each other but also acknowledging that we're not all always going to get it right and while I might learn to communicate with one person really well, I might struggle a little bit more with someone else just because our styles are different. And to have enough compassion to appreciate and look after ourselves to know that we're not always going to get it right. And that reasonable adjustments are not adjusting the person, they're adjusting the system that a person is working in or to. And that it's a conversation that needs to be had and should be to my mind, more accessible, just in the style we have it and the work we do moving forward from it. Um, so for me, this conversation has been incredibly helpful because I've been able to gain perspective in, in how I can communicate with people. And there'll certainly be things that I'll be taking away that each of you have said that have really resonated. Um, and the more we have these conversations, the more we learn about each other's perspectives um, and we grow. Um, so thank you. Thank you so much for your time and your candour. It's been incredibly valuable and hopefully it will be valuable to anyone listening as well. Thank you. Thank, thank you very you. much. Thank you for listening to For the Record. Join us next time for more insights from underrepresented voices within the veterinary professions. If you would like to get involved in future episodes, please contact the RCVS Knowledge Archives team by email at archives at rcvsknowledge.org.